We're looking at, if you're visiting, the incarnation. That just simply means God putting on flesh. And the radicalness of this claim that the eternal became touchable in that little child in the manger. As we take a look at this, we have seen that those little hands that literally were holding on and grasping as a child will an infant around Mary's finger were the hands that created the universe. That that voice that cooed and cried and that laughed was the voice that spoke power into the cosmos. And today we take a look at that, that very heart that was beating in that little baby was the heart of the Creator Himself. John tries to explain in a way that is probably some of the most famous words written in history. If you'll take your Bible out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to John 1 on page 862 in your pew Bible. Gospel of John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. As we see, as John, his language almost breaks down trying to explain as the Holy Spirit is motivating him, that the immeasurable vastness of this cosmos and the incomprehensible complicatedness of it, there's not just this marvelous mind, but there is a heart. Together as God's people, we'll read verses 14 through 18 together. If you're visiting, we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. So let's read this together out loud. And as you read... Listen with your heart, you're reading God's Word. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because He was before me. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the bloom fades, but those words will last forever. Uh, It's all about time. How many of you get at least seven hours of sleep a night? Oh, that's good. That's what they say you're supposed to get. Very few people. How many of you get five hours or less? All right. You should be seating. We're trying to complete the worship experience here by putting airline blankets in the pews so you can just go ahead and uh, nap. (laughs) Timing, like they say, is everything. How much time do you think you should allow when you invite somebody to a dinner party? Six weeks? Four weeks? How about sending thank yous? How much time do you think it should be before you communicate that? Thank you. What about when you're telling your relatives you're coming to their place for the holidays? One night so they can't move? I love uh, this, uh, one of my favorite letters this time of year. I'm always reminded, uh, this is back in the 1980s, before cell phones and emails, a daughter who had gone away to college and she hadn't communicated with her parents a lot. And before she was coming home for the holidays, uh, she wrote this. Dear mom and dad, before I come down for the holidays, I thought I'd catch you up with things. Not to worry, things are going really great. The fire in the apartment last month didn't do as much damage as it could have. I'm recovering fine from hitting my head, jumping out of the back door. In fact, the cute paramedic was so nice and concerned, he let me stay at his place. I really do think we're going to have a simple wedding, so don't worry about the expenses. I can't wait to name the baby after one of you. In closing, don't worry. 
there was no fire, no accident, no paramedic. I'm not getting married and you're not going to be grandparents. I am getting a D in history and I want you to keep it in perspective. (laughs) Writer's strike is still on, but it's uh, smart to communicate. How we communicate something and when we do says a lot about the content of it. As you and I come together this morning, how do you put the incarnation in perspective? How do you put the idea that we are here to celebrate not just that the Spirit of God filled a little child? We're not here to celebrate that He was just a look-like kind of human, but He wasn't. This is this mystery of God becoming flesh. And as we try to struggle with these words, as we said last Sunday night, it's like fireworks in reverse. That if you have a little thing, it's just cold in a shell and you throw it into the air and it fills the sky with light and sound. And if you put that on reverse, that's what's happening. That God himself is becoming this child. John struggles with this. Ain arche, ain halaga, says the Greek. In the beginning was the word. And the word was, and here he doesn't say was the God, because he's not the Father. And it's not like he's a God, like another God. But he is Lagos. He is God the Son. Van Gogh, when he was painting, he, he loved those bright colors when you see that. And he used to be so frustrated on his palette because what he saw with his eyes, he could never get the right compound together to get the colors just right. And when you and I come together and try to talk about this, it is so hard to put our heads, let alone our hearts, around this. But two terms that theologians have used for the last 2,000 years speaks of this immenseness, not just of God's love, but of what He has done. The incarnation and subordination. And what that means about God the Son, that He would incarnate and subordinate to the Father, is it tells us about three loves. God's love for Himself. How much the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit in this dance of the Godhead. How much God loves you and me. Humanity, His relentless pursuit of us that He came to this planet for a reason. And then this unstoppable, life-changing love that we can release into each other's lives as we love each other. And Bella, our mission is to work with these other churches and ministries to help change this city, to be the greatest city for Christ. And as we're getting ready with our small groups to be sharing that coming up during Lent time with other churches and ministries and really start to move it up, understanding this Bethlehem event releases a power into our lives. Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn over and take a look at this. Turn with me back over to John, the first chapter, page 862 and... This remarkable truth about God's love for God, the Father and the Son. Starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Well, let's read this together. Let's read verses 1 through 5 out loud. If you're visiting, the reason I have you read, it takes a different part of your brain to speak than it does to listen, and this is important stuff. It's like God wrote it. Okay, let's uh, <laughs> read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now what you have here 
is obviously as a good Jewish boy, as the Holy Spirit is moving, it sounds like Genesis 1, Breshit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Hashemayim. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was made through Him. The Spirit of God in Genesis 1, which is a feminine verb, by the way, hovering over the spirit of the darkness, the chaos, and about ready to create. And hear the eternal Word, this is who Jesus is. And what is shocking about this is when you read the New Testament, and I remind you, eight of the nine writers of the New Testament are good Jewish boys. Luke was not. He was a Gentile. But as they write this, they are talking about God coming down. And that they steeped in Judaism. And the core issue for Judaism is the oneness of God. Shema Israel, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, is one. And that these Jewish boys would write, He is, as Paul would say, the visible image of the invisible God. Now in the Old Testament, there were all these, these hints, these prophecies, hundreds of them of this coming Christ, and they seemed at times kind of disconnected. One part talks about he's going to be human like this child, like a superhero, like a super prophet. Then they talk about the Son of Man and Daniel as though he's, he's a divine being above the angels. And he was, yes, both. In fact, if you look, turn over to Isaiah 9, another passage. It's on page 555. Isaiah tries to explain what the Spirit of God is moving within him, which we saw last week. Peter said they didn't totally understand the truth of what they were saying, though they certainly meant something to them. But here in verse 6 of the ninth chapter, let's read verses 6 through 7 together. And watch this language. It's just strange. Let's read it together. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father this child it's like if you took 40 artists or painters and put them in separate rooms and told them verbally to paint something and they all were accurate but they only had a little piece of the mosaic and it all comes together and makes sense the reason i have given my life and trust jesus christ with my very soul is because of how he brings everything together in this sense and this not only the incarnation is a great term of which teaches truth that he came down. But the subordination of his willingness to please the Father. You live in a time, over the last 2,000 years, there's really been two century hinges that wrestled with the deity of Christ. By the way, you can believe anything you want this morning. You can just say Jesus is a great prophet, a great teacher, someone who inspires you. You can't call yourself a Christian. Because the Christian understanding, according to the text, and for the last 2,000 years, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is not, docetism was an early heresy, that he appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. 
fact, they said he never really walked on the earth. I know a lot of docetic Christians today. Jesus is their philosophy. It's the way they try to live their life. Kind of positive thinking. But a living, breathing son of God is not someone that is in their life. The other heresy was monophysite, that he had one nature. No, two natures, fully human, fully God. Not confused, not blended wrongly. He's not a person. Adoptionism, the people believed he was this little baby and he grew up and Jesus was such a righteous person that the eternal Christ filled him. It's a heresy. Heresy has truth, it's just truth out of balance. Now you and I are celebrating something even more radical. That this little Jesus, when he emptied himself, and on Christmas Eve we'll be talking about this, the kenosis, that he lays aside his glory. He had to grow up. He had to learn language. He had to learn his Hebrew or his Aramaic. He had to learn to walk. When little Jesus, as a toddler, started to walk, he fell and hit his head. When he threw a ball at a little toddler Jesus, he didn't freeze it in midair. It bounced off his head. He had to learn those things. He had emptied himself, just like you and me totally, except one thing, no sin. Can you imagine Mary raising her oldest son, a child without any rebellion, perfectly obedient? Can you imagine how hard that would be? It was hard for my mother, but can you imagine? <laughs> no. We know a lot better than that. Uh, and so he is the only begotten. The 4th and 5th century wrestled with this. And that's why the councils of Nicaea, the great minds and bishops, in 320 or in 450 later, in Chalcedon came together. And he is fully God and fully man. In the 19th and 20th century, the deity of Christ also has been the most challenged in the last 2,000 years. The church is always... There, by the way, there's no new heresies. They're all just retreads. New age is not new. It is just always this retread as you look back through history of coming and wrestling with how can this be and the subordination. God the Father is greater than God the Son, not in essence, not in substance, but in office. Jesus at his baptism, God the Father said, This is my Son, beloved, I love him. I am so pleased with him. Jesus said, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus told his critics, I did not come to do my own will. And the footnote is, and you should be glad right now, I didn't. I have come to do my Father's will. Jesus said, I can do nothing but whatever I see the Father doing. Jesus himself said, my very food is to do the Father's will. Are we at that place where we would rather do what God wants than take the next bite of food or the next drink of water? That's what Jesus, he loved the Father. This wasn't some begrudging submitting. It was his delight. The Father has loved the Son before there was a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean. And the Son has loved the Father. In fact, in this love, in the Holy Spirit, in this dance within itself, in the grace, as the theologian said, is what you and I are being caught up in. Why did he put on flesh? To first of all, show us what God is like. He's not just some great force out there, some cosmic thing, some angry judge. He grew up and he loved people and he carried their bags and he opened doors and he opened the blind eyes and he healed the leper and he fed the hungry. He hung around the prostitutes and the outcasts and those that had sinned and fallen. And he went to this cross to say, I will pay for the bill you owe. 
I don't owe a thing, but I will pay it for you because I love you. And he was raised from the dead in glory. And one of the celebrations we in the church miss, the ascension, Jesus is in a spiritual body right now, or this book is a lie. And he is in a spiritual body right now next to the Father, and he is coming back someday, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is true. Amen? Amen? And what we are called to do is now because God, we see how much he loves himself. Why did Jesus come? Because the Father wanted you. And someone had to pay. And he loves the Father. And Jesus says, I have loved you as the Father has loved you. And now he is after us. So this great love of pursuing us. He showed us who he is. The rabbi Saul of Tarsus taught at the foot of Gamaliel, one of the great minds of the first century, the Jewish leader said, he is the visible image of the invisible God. Peter said, as he saw him, my Lord and my God, as well as Thomas. And so he shows us, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He also came so that he could suffer. The 50-cent word for asking the question of why do good people suffer is called theodicy. And God's answer in this Bethlehem answer is the incarnation. The question is in the Bible, why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? And I've always told you my question is not just why do the wicked, but why do the stupid prosper? Have you noticed that? Some people are just dumb as stumps, but they're doing great. But anyway... And the answer is, God's answer is, someday I will sort this all out. And the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. He says, you have my word on it. But what he chose instead was to come and suffer with us. Was it not fitting, the writer of Hebrews said, that the Son of God would learn obedience through suffering on behalf of those who were to obtain salvation? He hurts with us. And the next time you're tempted to say, Lord... You don't know what it's like to be betrayed, he says, not so fast. Next time we say, Lord, you just don't know what it's like to have these dreams and not have them fulfilled, he said, I do know that. Next time we say, Lord, you don't know what it is to go through this hardship because you're there, he says, let me tell you about hardship. We say, Lord, you don't know what it's like to be deserted. He said, no one has been deserted like I was. And because of that, I will never leave you. I know what it's like. I will never leave you. And he is pursuing us because he wants us to be in this relationship. And in this relentless love, he came to his own and his own received him not. You read here in John 1. Well, turn with me. Last passage. Turn back over to John 1 so you can see this. Page 862 and this great truth of God reaching and coming down to us and his great love for humankind. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world came into being through Him. He was its maker. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to us His own home, and His own people did not receive Him. Pause. You've got to know what that means. The difference between guilt, psychologically, and shame. Guilt is when you have done something wrong. Shame is when you think you were wrong. Guilt is when you have broken something, failed to do it. Shame is when you put that upon you as a person. Your enemies cannot shame you. They can attack you, but the only person that has power to reject you and shame you are your family or your friends. 
So when Jesus came to his very own home, his own people, the Jewish nation, and they rejected him, that is a pain. I can remember when I gave my life to Christ in high school, I hung around some rather salty dudes during my jerk phase of life. And when I gave my life to the Lord, they certainly had nothing to do with me ever again. And I remember at a reunion going and seeing them. And I... they had heard I'd become a, a pastor and they, they just hated me for leaving them. And I didn't leave them, I just wouldn't party with them anymore. And I remember seeing them and I, they were gathered together and we had gone through so much together, we were tight. And I walked into the room and they saw me and they all got up together and walked out. That feeling is what shame is. And Jesus came to His own, to us, and we walked out on Him. But He so loved us because He so loved the Father and the Father loved us. He wouldn't let it go. And we forget this. We forget very often because of our brokenness and our rebellion and our running away. We think God doesn't want us anymore. Yes, He does. He wants us as much as the first time we ever heard the good news. And we forget about this love. I know, as you get older, you forget a lot of things. I know I meet new people every day as I go along. And I think of the older couple, they fell in love, and he asked her to marry She said yes, and he went home all excited, and he woke up in the morning, and he thought, my goodness, he, he kind of remembered. He thought, did I ask her to marry me? So he called her up and said, did I ask you to marry me? And she said, yes, you did. And I'm so excited because I forgot who I was going to marry. <laughs> And we very often forget, I know some of you will get it later on, that as God continues to seek us and to pursue us, that His great love for us, and as John says, the Word became flesh. And this incarnational experience now of God coming into our lives, and it releases a transformation that we have for each other. You and I will never know love, and I mean love, Unless we have some people that we're like in a small group or ministering to others. Not in the deep sense of the word. Love is not God. But God is love. What do I mean by that? First John, later on as John is the old man writing his epistle, says, let us love one another for love is of God and whoever loves knows God. For God is love. That thing of where people love you and bless you and that warm feeling that it puts around you is really a reflection of who God is. When we try to deify love in itself, which the world does, it's the same of trying to cast warmth and removing the flame. Trying to hold on to heat and not having a source anymore. Trying to hold on to light when you've taken the bulb away. God is love. We don't deify love in itself. I know a lot of people that say that they love and they love and, and that's wonderful. And there's still the background radiation of the Creator. His love we see all around in His creativity. But when you have a group that you can sit down with and love them, not just here as we're gathered in worship, but I mean in your front room, in the office, in the classroom you're at, in the factory, wherever you are working, where you can share. The men's ministry just went downtown together to go and serve at the rescue mission and the guys as they got together, there are 30 of them. It's that experience that we start to understand God's love. Love is not some sweet, diluted, syrupy, sugary emotion. Love is the will saying, I want your very best. Jesus said you are to love others like you love yourself. 
You don't always think you're cute and right and nice, just most of the time. But when you make a decision, you think it's in your highest welfare. Well, I don't have to like you or think you're cute and right and nice to love you. But when I make a decision, I have to think this is the very best for you. Even if I'm off in it, my heart has to be driving that I want the best for you. The love, the lights, and the beloved. And that's why this ministry of reconciliation that we are called together, of why we share together in breaking this great mission of Bel Air into the small groups. Of course, you've been around church land enough, you know, it's because it's very true that the words for love in the Greek, the eros, seeks the beautiful. It loves the beautiful. Do you love the beautiful? There are so many beautiful things in the middle of this crazy world. God wants you to delight in them. You've heard me before, the rabbis have a saying, we will give an account for every blessing we refuse to enjoy. That when God gives you a, the beauty of the lights or hearing this great music, when you go outside and, and you see children laughing or playing together, or you watch somebody caring and you just say, that's beautiful, or wonderful art or a great film or a great book, and you go, this is beautiful, or taste. You know, a hot cup of coffee. Somebody sent us this last week, a pecan pie, and I loved the entire thing. I want to tell you, it was just a gift from God. But it's, you know, God wants us to enjoy these things. You seek the beautiful. Another word for love, though, is philea, which means the beauty of commitment, a brotherly love. You don't necessarily think the person is attractive or wonderful or the thing, but you're committed to it. And that's beauty in itself. I can uh, share with uh, this group because he's not here. My uh, son Paul is um, he is uh, sharing together a lot of things that he is he is now with the uh, medical kind of surgical area of life. He went to a party and his friends who were with him, the boss put it on. You're supposed to be there. They said we'll be there, and they had name tags and they didn't show. What Paul did without telling them is he went and he picked up their name tags so the boss wouldn't know that they had blown them off. That's brotherly love. It's doing something because you think that it's right. It's being committed. But the greatest love is, of course, agape. We call it agape love. And it doesn't just look attracted to the beautiful, and it's not just committed to the beautiful. It creates the beautiful from the ugly. This is who God is. And you and I live in a very target-rich environment for ugliness. There are some ugly people out there. There are some ugly situations and relationships. And what God's joy is to come and to change it. And God looks beyond with the surface and He sees who we can become. Reading a great little collection of people who received eyesight from surgery in the last 20 years. That they were born blind and what it was like for them when they received their sight. One gentleman said he was blown away at the color yellow. As you're blind, if you have blind friends, you know, those who can't see, you try to explain colors through associating. And they always associated yellow with warmth. So he thought he knew. But when he could finally see, he just said he can't take his eyes off yellow. He says it's the greatest color God ever came up with. This other lady was sharing that she was blind. When she received her sight in the hospital bed, her husband came. And she had always known him just by feeling his face. And when he came over and she touched his face again, she said, you're even more beautiful than I thought. God does that with us. He sees who will become. 
And he wants us to see that in those people we're sitting by. And on the outside, they may look pretty ugly, and they are. And they may be self-centered and cold, and they might be hard to live with or to be around. But God says, do you have my eyes to see? And this story is this relentless God. Now we are to go into the world. Because God loves God and God loves us, we can love each other. A problem downtown, I want to tell you, is brokenness. And if we haven't been living that, we have no idea what it is to literally... When's the last time you went to bed hungry and you weren't on a diet? (laughs) That you just didn't have the money. When's the last time you did not have any kind of health care? When was the last time you had to live in the terror of the gang violence and the popping of the nine millimeters and you getting under your bed? And the brokenness is the problem downtown of the despair. And now we can take that there is a Savior. And the emptiness of suburbia is more deadly. If despair is rated by suicide, we kill ourselves in suburbia three times as much as you do downtown. The hollow emptiness of materialism locked away in the loneliness of these people living around here. And we can take the light of Christ to them. Because God pursued us. M.L. Bruner, the theologian, was trying to explain what Bethlehem is all about. And he was relating an incident where he was living, I believe it was in Fusen or somewhere in, in, in Germany. And when the passes snowed over, you didn't cross them. And a friend of his, they had a horrible fight in a ministry or business or something. And, and they had been friends forever and they wouldn't talk to each other. And the one guy lived across the mountains. And when the snow came, he had been sending him letters. And he would not respond, saying, let's try. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? And Emil Bruner said that one night that there was a knock on the door. And he opened it and standing there was a man half alive, half frozen. He's just covered in just the freezingness of those German winters. His friend had walked over the Alps to come and to pursue him and to tell him, let's be friends again. And he said that was a sense of what God Almighty, when He laid aside His glory in heaven, the Son of God, and He put on that flesh and that child, and He came and He lived and walked not just through the frozen forest of Germany, but the jungle spiritually of this world to be hated, to be on the cross, to take the sins of the world, He who owed nothing. Why? So that He could say, I want you. I love you. Can we understand as we're sitting here the riches that we are waiting for? Reading this last week, on the 29th of January in the year 2003, a girl by the name of Thena Russell became the richest teenager in history. On her 18th birthday, she happened to inherit the wealth of a gentleman by the name of Aristotle Onassis. Her mother, Christina, had died when she was three years old, and so she couldn't receive any money, and they set it aside... On her 18th birthday, she became the first teenage billionaire in history. I wonder what kind of a party she gave. You have an inheritance that makes that look like chump change. And I'm not kidding. If we are in Christ, you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The whole cosmos. And it is being kept for us since safety and security and you don't need to worry about this and you and I can take an advance withdrawal on it every day of our life. Do you see how much the Father loves the Son?
And the Son loves the Father. And we are being caught in this love affair. And do you see why He incarnated and came? Because He wanted you and me so badly. And can we really fully experience what it is to crazily love each other? Because God has things in control. The Word became flesh. Full, overflowing with grace and truth. Let's pray, shall we? Father, that you would love us in any shape or form is beyond our ability to really put our arms, our head, and our heart around. And yet it is so true. God, I pray if there are any in this room right now, you've been aware of another voice besides mine that's been speaking and tugging at your heart. And you know it's the Lord. You might know the story, but you've been afraid to yield yourself to unconditionally surrender to this great lover of your heart. All you have to do right now is to say in an act of faith, Christ, I believe you died for me on that cross and paid for my sin with your blood. I believe that you're alive, Lord, and I don't understand it all, but I take all I know of me and I surrender it to all I know you. Come, Lord, in my life and take over and you'll begin a relationship that will last forever. Thank you, Lord, for giving this wild love. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are being caught into this great salvation. And Lord, as we now come before you, with our gifts. May you bless them, bless the gift and the giver alike, that Jesus may have more place to rule and reign. Maranatha, Lord, send him back soon. For his sake we pray. Amen.